Okay, so who really will save you money? Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work, of course, appears at houstonchronicle.com and expressnews.com in San Antonio. What a jam-packed week, Jeremy. I'm going to make this prediction. On the show, we're not going to get to everything that happened this week. Too much stuff. So, So you absolutely have to, as I always tell you, be a subscriber, quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, follow our Twitter feeds. I had somebody complain that uh, we don't talk about everything that we ever tweeted. We don't talk about all of it on the show. I said, well, there's no way to do that, right? We have to have some sort of editorial judgment. And they call it news judgment for a reason. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong, but we're exercising it as best we can. I think we're at the point in the legislative session, Jeremy, and what do we have now as we record the show on uh, Friday here, there are 38 days, nine hours, six minutes, and 49 seconds left in the legislative session. Not that I'm counting or anything. Actually, you know, at quorumreport.com, we have the countdown clock for the end of the session. Yeah, and I wanted to thank th- you all for having that on there. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're very welcome. I got all those thank yous from people, uh, staffers, lobbyists, lawmakers, just people who watch all this unfold. That's the thing they start to look at. And you know, the, if, if it's, if, you know, if for some reason it froze up on their computer, they'd be hitting refresh to see just how long we have left in this, uh, what is for a lot of people, a nightmare. This is the part of the session that I think can be described as a nightmare for a variety of reasons. It has nothing to do with ideology. This is just when it gets really hard, right? So much is happening and it's sort of a flurry of activity, but in some ways, and a friend described it this way yesterday, she said, it's kind of like a treadmill because it feels like they're running and running and running, but not doing a whole lot, um, you know, on, in, in certain ways, but in other ways, they're doing a ton. So let's talk about that. The top leadership in the Texas House and Texas Senate do not agree. And how many times have we said, Jeremy, on this show and elsewhere, that so often in Texas politics, it's not really Republicans versus Democrats or conservatives versus liberals. It's the House versus Senate. And that has been the case in session after session after session. And you wrote a lot about it this week. We did as well. Uh, You have the Speaker of the House, Dade Phelan, at odds with Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. And Patrick is really dug in on his property tax plan. He says that Phelan doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to this policy. And let's give Patrick credit for this. This is the issue that he's not on Fox News Channel about. Because, you know, in other states, no, nobody would care what we're doing with property taxes in Texas, right? But this has been, I would say, the underpinning of his political career. When he was a radio talk show host years ago, when we were radio competitors in Houston, um, he would bus people to the Capitol to bitch about their property taxes. He was organizing around that. He became a state senator based on that, became lieutenant governor largely based on that. So this is his signature issue. All the other things you hear him talk about are, I think, peripheral to this. That doesn't mean he can't really go off about those things. But he was on Spectrum News instead of Fox News Channel talking about property taxes. He was asked by Karina Kling, the news anchor there, about the possibility of a special session. And, oh, man, it makes me makes me shiver to hear them talk about a special session, although Patrick's been kind of talking about it all session, right? He started talking about it in January yeah. or February. That if we didn't get school choice or the property tax plan he wants, then he he wants to see one special session after another because he doesn't have any plans for the summer. Here's how his – he didn't, doesn't have other plans for the summer, right? He had nothing else to do. But here's Karina Kling and Patrick talking about how this might unfold. You mentioned special session. Obviously, only the governor can call that. But have you had any conversations about the likelihood of this triggering uh, one? 
If I did, I wouldn't tell you. But remember, uh, I can't call a special session, but I can create one by not passing a key, key bill that has to pass. That's what I did in 17. Are you saying you may put those roadblocks in there? If, if, uh, if we don't get uh, some major priorities that the people want us to pass uh, because they acted very slowly during the session, then, then uh, I think we ought to finish the job. Patrick said that uh, he forced a special session in 2017, which is accurate. At the time, you might remember what he did was he declined to have the Senate pass uh, very key legislation. It's called sunset legislation. It has to do with extending the life of state agencies. The legislation that he had his eye on passing was the bathroom bill. One thing he omitted from the interview is that even though he forced a special session about the bathroom bill in 2017, the bathroom bill still didn't pass. Right. It wasn't it wasn't a successful um, legislative adventure for him. Now, the next part of the interview had you thinking about Houston history. Right. Because what what, what was the prop that uh, Patrick brought with him to this TV interview in Austin? Yeah. How do you not see fistfuls of dollars and not immediately in if you're in Houston think this? Yeah. Why wouldn't you think? of Mattress Mac. Buy one, get one free. Hurry, this offer won't last long. Gallery furniture really will save you money. Here's Patrick being asked about the emerging standoff over property tax plans in the House and Senate. The Speaker feeling when the, the debate happened and their bill passed said that should send a message. I mean, what about the chances of doing both? Because it seems like you're both very dug in on this. No, the, the, the appraisal, the appraisal caps, so we don't have time to explain it, Karina. They're not a factor, essentially, anymore in a person's tax bill, number one. Number two, it doesn't benefit any senior at all, which are 40% of homeowners. And third, you know, I, I, you know California Dade, California Dade wants a California tax plan. California Dade, like California Dade. You know, I could have chosen almost any California song here. What would you have gone with, Jeremy? Oh, I tell you, every time Republicans bring this stuff up, I'm thinking LL Cool J going mm-hmm. back to Cali. Because every Cali, time they want to Cali, slam somebody, Cali. they're going back to Cali. <laughs> I thought that he missed an opportunity to call him California feeling, which would have been more like California dreaming yep. on such a winter's day. But what do you make of the standoff here? I mean, we have these guys really dug in, both of them, with uh, Patrick saying that the Senate's not going to back off their plan to increase the homestead exemption, and Phelan going with the uh, lower caps for appraisals at 5% for uh, homeowners and for businesses, and there doesn't seem to be any negotiation going on at all. They're just both saying that they're going to do their plan, and that's it. Well, it's hard to kind of even figure out what the negotiations is because I'm not sure there's much going on. So it's like, you know, as I reported, you know, there's this, you know, Patrick's having a hard time getting conversations with, you know, Dade Phelan and his leadership team to even start talking about this stuff. Although in, on the House side, Dade Phelan a couple of weeks ago told a bunch of reporters that like he's willing to ne- negotiate on, right. you know, raising the homestead exemption, but mm. he hasn't done that negotiations with Patrick. These guys just haven't really spoken much at all this year. You know, right. I can't tell you how many like insiders in both the House and the Senate I asked like so, you know, how can, how would you describe the relationship between Dan Patrick and Dade Veland? And I can't tell you how many people said what relationship. Right, they don't have one. Yeah, it's like there's just not much there. And mm-hmm. so what you saw, you know, with the name calling and I kind of made the Thought, I think Dade Phelan is kind of ghosting Patrick because he won't mm-hmm. 
come to the table. He's not going over there, you know, to talk to him like Dennis Bonin would have back when he was the speaker of the house. Yeah. Uh, and so like, there's clearly something going on here where these guys are just not able to even communicate on the basic level, but they're doing it through the media, which mm-hmm. is always a great way to negotiate a major piece of, you know, property right. tactic form, hit them in the, in, in the media and on social media. If you're Dan Patrick, you know, wave dollar bills around and Dave Phelan's writing op ed pieces in the Houston Chronicle to basically answer Patrick. And so you're forcing Dan Patrick to read the Houston Chronicle, which is crazy. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then you're, you know, having Dave Phelan having to decide, well, how do I respond to being called California Dade or do I? <laughs> you know, it's like, and like we should note that Dave Phelan is from Beaumont. And yep. as far as I know, has never lived in California. <laughs> Just in case somebody wondering why this happened. So, well, I kept waiting for you know, I kept waiting for Phelan's team to call Patrick Marilyn Dan or something. Yeah. He actually is from there, right? And you know, um, somebody you know, must have brought that up, and they said, "Well," mm-hmm. and they, they they clearly know they could do that if they wanted to. <laughs> They're thinking, "Hey, yeah, let's not do that." You know, Patrick was not always this way. And I would say one thing about you said about ghosting. I would say they're both kind of doing that. I mean, it, Phelan's yeah. not really going to negotiate with Patrick, but Patrick's not negotiating with him either. He's going on television to, like you said, wave the cash around and call him California Dade. Um, it reminds me of what a, a senior reporter said the other day about any time a group holds a press conference about a big fundamental issue. A lot of times, once they're holding the press conference, it means they've already lost the fight or lost the negotiation, right? I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're out there to kind of make noise in the media, but they're not really going to get anything done at a bargaining table uh, with the other side. Yeah, and I made this terrible discovery this week that I, like this is actually like my thirtieth legislative session in all the states I've covered. And so, look, I know there's always going to be a level of this that the leaders of your house and the Senate, no matter what state I'm in, are you know whether in the same party or opposite party, whatever. It, it, there's going to be a fight right now. This mm-hmm. is when the tensions start going. Just like you said earlier, it's like this is getting real now. We're we're in the, we're less than forty days. Bills are dying. You know, it's like right. with every breath of air that's taking, somebody's mm-hmm. bills in trouble and so that tension's always going to be in it but this i would argue has been different you know again i'm not used to seeing this where the negotiations don't even feel like they're talking at this point and the fact that they're using the media to communicate with each other is kind of trump versus biden type stuff and not quite yeah you know what i would expect in the texas capital where again these guys are like you know, I, I don't know the distance from the House doors to the Senate doors, but we're talking like yards. <laughs> They're not far from each other. They could easily communicate with each other, you would think, but yet they're choosing not to. It's not very far from the House door to the Senate door. And you also do know that if the doors to both chambers are open, that the lieutenant governor on the dais where he stands can see the speaker and vice versa. They, they, they're literally right at the same level. And it's the tradition in the House and Senate that when the uh, redistricting bills are finally passed, they try to do it at exactly the same time. They open the door so they can see each other do it as sort of this, you know, running joke about uh, the distrust between the House and the Senate. It is a real thing, but at least they can have some fun with it. And, you know, in years past, and I'm thinking, Jeremy, the past, uh, you know, 10 to 15 years worth of legislative sessions in Texas, there did seem to be a lot of moments uh, with about a month left to go that the House and Senate were not going to work out their deal on whatever the Big thing was. And then right at the very end, 
right in the last two weeks or so. It all kind of comes together. And there is a natural place for these guys to, to come together. Uh, there was an amendment offered in the House on the House tax plan that would basically get them there. It, it would kind of do both things. It would do the uh, increase in the homestead exemption, and it would also lower the appraisal cap, but do it more at, I think, 6 or 7% instead of the 5 that the speaker's talking about. These numbers are all arbitrary, and they can you know make different uh, you know uh, proposals to try to you know do the offset uh, of what it's going to cost in the state budget you know depending on which thing they're going to do but to your point the difference is this battling it out in the media Joe Strauss did not do that you know and um, he was dealing with Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst uh, for the first part of his uh, career as speaker and Dewhurst would not do that either not you know not the way that that uh, Patrick is doing of course Patrick is more a creature of the media and so maybe he's just more comfortable having the fight that way yeah, and I, and I was kind of pointing out, like, I pointed out in the story that I just posted at uh, HughesChronicle.com that, like, you know, look, Patrick knows how to be uh, at a theatrical already. You know, it's like we, we tease that he's kind of mimicking uh, uh, Mattress Mac, but mm-hmm. really, it's like, you know, remember, this guy was a, a TV sportscaster who was, you know, right. getting painted blue and, you know, lip syncing to, you know, you know, songs while doing highlights for sports. And like, so there's, this guy knows how to play the the television game and the media it's game. A showbiz so, guy. so he just yeah. comes in this kind of route in a different way. And I think that's, what's kind of maybe throwing this off. Cause like, mm-hmm. uh, that is not kind of like, you know, no offense to Rick Perry or Dewhurst. <laughs> I don't remember those guys having that no, kind of theatrical no part to their repertoire. Again, to see Dan Patrick holding two fistfuls of dollars, looking at the <laughs> screen, telling people how much they're going to save, <laughs> just like it just kind of gives this image of like, okay, this is just not normal. <laughs> yeah, but I think that on this issue, they'll um, they'll work it out, and I and if they don't. I would say this is the counter argument. If they don't, I think there's a better chance for a special session about this than about school vouchers, which we'll talk about here uh, in just a little bit. Um, On the question of diversity, equity, and inclusion legislation making its way through the Senate, the Senate uh, is at this point just a legislative meat grinder putting out all this stuff. Yesterday, it was uh, DEI and tenure um, and uh, some legislation that had to do with voting, uh, getting rid of uh, the countywide voting on election day, uh, you know, in the big counties where that's you know usually uh, you know implemented and used and, and used with great effect. By the way, it would probably hurt Republican voters to get rid of it. Um, but DEI, it's a very emotional debate, wasn't it, Jeremy? Oh, absolutely. It it went deep into the night. It was a five hour debate. Ultimately, in the end, uh, it, you know, I, I think I left the Capitol probably close to midnight. I think they wrapped up around ten ish. But uh, but yeah, there was a lot of emotions in this thing. You can see, like you know, and, and I'll, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of this thing, where it's just like, look, you know, the the you know the people who see DEI uh, as a problem say, look, you know, they're not against diversity, but they think DEI has gone in a route that has uh, you know, led to, you know, candidates of merit being passed over for mm-hmm. others simply based on their skin color or some other right. factors. Well, they're saying right? it's reverse racism, right? Yeah, exactly. And then on the other side, you have, you know, you know, people who support these DI programs say, no, that's not what it is. What it's doing is trying to get the people who merit consideration into the pool because in the past you ignore them all. It's like we need the people who deserve jobs before. Now we're trying to get them back into the pool so you can hire them and promote them. And so they have a shot, too. And so that's where we, we start this argument from. But, you know, on the floor, 
man, that was a rough, you know, debate. There were mm-hmm. just points where it's like I could just feel the tension in that chamber. Yeah, let me give you one of those points during the debate. Uh, Senator Royce West, who is an African-American legislator from Dallas County, he reminded the senators of the history of Texas secession. If you've ever read the document that was the Declaration of um, of Secession in Texas, is the, you know, this, this document of grievances, um, in the, in the whole country, in the whole South that seceded during the Civil War, it's one of the worst ones. You know, if you and I've studied this, like if you look at the um, the actual paperwork for when the states seceded, mo- the vast majority of them, Jeremy, the the language was about states' rights, and it sort of left out all the stuff about uh, African Americans and slavery and all of that. It was more about Tenth Amendment states rights. And that's why when the Tea Party came along, you know, back in uh, 2008 and 2010, you know, kind of in that era, um, when politicians like Rick Perry would talk about the 10th Amendment and states rights, everyone would say what he's doing is hearkening back to the Civil War era, right? Um, the, the Texas documents talked about the inferiority of black people and basically the white man's God-given right to own those people. Listen to Senator West talk about that. When there was a, a succession from the Union by Texas, statements made then that the reason they, that Texas wanted to succeed is because the black man was inferior. Those are some of the ugly words from in this very chamber depicted the plight of African Americans. A society is always eager to cover up its misdeeds with a cloak of forgetfulness. Let's not forget that. But no society can fully repress an ugly past when the ravages persist into the present. And the ravages, my friends, still persist today. You know it as well as I. America owes a debt of justice, which has only been, it has begun to pay. Let me say that again. America, Texas, owes a debt of justice, which it has only begun to pay. And use of a DEI program is part of that debt, or the mechanism in order to pay that debt. Yes, it has some imperfections, but you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, he's talking about the Declaration of Causes, February 2nd. 1861. He's talking about what the Texas legislature at that time said about the entry of Texas into the United States. And in that document, it says that Texas was, quote, received as a commonwealth holding, maintaining and protecting the institution known as Negro slavery. The servitude of the African-American to the white race within her limits, a relation that had existed from the first settlement of her wilderness by the white race and which her people intended should exist in all future time. You invoke that, and to your point, Jeremy, you talk about an emotional moment, not just for Senator West, but for senators like Boris Miles, who was also African-American from Houston, and his commentary was just a gut punch. Yeah, okay, so to kind of get you in where it was, I'm I'm assuming it was about 9.30 or so at night, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Boris Miles, uh, again, one of only two black me- members of the entire Texas Senate. They, they sit next to each other, you know, underneath a painting of Barbara Jordan. 
the first black woman ever to be elected to the Senate. You got to know that. Mm-hmm. So, but as the debate was going on, uh, several members of the Senate, white Republican members, started quoting MLK mm-hmm. and explaining why they should get rid of this diversity program. Mm-hmm. And again, and what was difficult, there was one point where one member appeared to be, you know, speaking to the whole chamber most of the time, uh, but then turned to face Boris Miles and uh, Royce West when she started to quote uh, MLK directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that just threw those guys off. Uh, and that made, you know, and, and again, he they quoted MLK from the I Have a Dream speech, uh, you know, where people are judged by their their merit and not by their skin color. You know, it's like yeah. the, the character of their, you know, of themselves. And yeah, mm-hmm. so we get that, right? Yeah. But Boris Miles gets up and, and he says, look, I got to correct this record. Uh, and he reminded uh, the people in the crowd that, you know, Martin Luther King had a lot of other speeches too that you could mm-hmm. quote from, and then he started reading from uh, the you know, the letter from the Birmingham jail, mm-hmm. in which it talked about the oppressors not understanding their evils, but yet it's up to the press to stand up. And then he turned to the body and he said, "Senators, I'm standing up." <laughs> and it's like it, yeah. you could feel at that moment that you know this had gotten to some place where the frustrations were high, you know, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, there's kind of a lesson in there. I think, you know, like when quoting MLK uh, towards the only people who are black in the room, mm-hmm. think about it. You know, just think about exactly what you're saying and why you're pointing towards them. And underneath a painting of Barbara Jordan, mm-hmm. which by the way, you know, it was just a couple of days earlier that we just had this new building named after Barbara Jordan. Mm-hmm like on the campus near the Capitol. Uh, yeah. First time ever we've had a black woman, you know, have a building named after her in this complex. Uh, so that was, a, you think, okay, progress. And then just a block down the road, you had this happening. And yeah. these guys are, you know, it made the argument that this is not only going to set us back, but send a terrible message to young you know, kids out there who are thinking about where are they going to go to college? If we right. get rid of all the DEI programs at every college in the state of Texas, does that send a message to them and future faculty to look in California, look mm-hmm. in New Jersey, look in places right. where, you know, maybe, you know, they have more diverse campuses, more diverse faculty, more people who look like you. As like and and one part of the testimony, there's one point where uh, I can't remember which senator said this, and I I apologize for that. But uh, said there was more diversity at Georgetown University Law School than there was at University of Texas, and that doesn't make any sense when you're looking at a state that is majority minority. As like we have, you know, our combination of of Hispanic and Black citizens is well over fifty percent now. Yeah. And yet they are not represented that way on either the campuses as students or faculty. And you're like, why is that still happening? <laughs> it's like we are a long way <laughs> from the 1960s, you would think, but yet such a short way. 
you know, from the 1960s in some ways. Yeah. And it's also a sign of the evolution of the Republican Party around here, where you used to have Republicans always arguing that government should be run more like a business. DEI programs are embraced by corporate America and businesses all over the place to try to make their workplaces better, right? And not just for the minorities who are there, but for the white people too, for everybody to bring as many voices as possible to the table when you're working on things that affect everyone in our society. Corporate America seems to be increasingly at odds with what today's Republican Party is all about. And I had uh, a friend of mine uh, a couple of days ago say that, you know, it's interesting that there was a time when the corporate lobby of people who, you know, advocate for uh, different corporate interests at the Texas Capitol or at the Capitol in D.C., uh, they could kind of ignore the social issues, Jeremy. They could kind of not worry about any of that. But now you have a blending of the two happening all the time. We're anti-DEI now suddenly in Texas. On abortion restrictions, you have proposals to try to tell companies that they can't pay for travel if a woman's going to go to another state to seek an abortion. All this stuff is now mixed together. I'm not sure what's going to happen with the DEI proposal in the Texas House. Of course, once again, there's a big standoff over a variety of issues, but I will say uh, that the House did go ahead and uh, strip uh, any funding for DEI programs out of the budget, right? So that tells you where the House Republicans are on that. Uh, Speaking of the House, this is one of the most bizarre moments that I have seen, and it goes uh, thematically, at least, with what we're talking about. You know that there's these guys who want Texas to secede again. Yes. The Texit, (laughs) Texit folks. I think that Brexit thing didn't go exactly the way a lot of those uh, folks, you know, promoting that over there. I don't think it went the way they thought it was going to go. But these folks say, "Hey, we could be our own country. It's it, it would be totally legal," which they're not right. Um, and look at the strengths that we have. For example, we have our own electricity grid. <laughs> well, you would think that that would be just blown out of the water. That argument wouldn't be made anymore after what's happened in the last, you know. 24 months, but they, they continue to say things like this. Um, there was a hearing of the Texas House Judiciary Committee, and the chairman, Jeff Leach, is a very conservative Republican. That's fair, right? Yeah. Um, but here you have Leach as someone who's very against secession, which is not a radical view. <laughs> he's, he's, he's not for it. And he has mixed it up with people on Twitter about this. You have all these Texit people, the people who are pushing for a piece of legislation uh, by Representative Brian Slayton that would put Texas sort of uh, on the path or, or looking toward seceding from the United States. That bill is not going anywhere in the Texas House. Um, and when critics of Leach have taken him on on Twitter, he has said that, uh, yes, unequivocally, yes, you are a seditionist traitor if you're for seceding from the United States. Again, doesn't seem like a radical point of view. Uh, So he's now being sued for defamation, for having engaged in that conversation. And Jeremy, you've seen these hearings a million times where uh, a chairman says, hey, now this person, it's your turn to testify. Come on down. Like the price is right. Come on down and give us your testimony. And usually they just start, they say their name, who they represent, and give their testimony. But listen to what this guy did instead when he had signed up to testify on a bill that was being heard in this committee. Uh, instead, he said to the chairman he was actually there to slap him with a lawsuit. Mr. Rosen, I've got you here testifying. Uh, on behalf of yourself on the bill on House Bill 4142, is that correct? I'm actually here as uh, Casey Little John with National Process Service, Jeff Leach. I have a citation here for you out of Parker County. You have 20 days from today to contact Parker County Clerk's office. All right. 
Mr. Chairman, are you you got to testify on the bill though? Yeah. Did you sign an affidavit? Did you did you register for the bill? One of the most bizarre things I've ever seen play out in a hearing, and that's a high bar, by the way, Jeremy. I've seen a lot over the years of watching these uh, watching these hearings. Um, there's more. The lawyer who drew up this paperwork and actually filed the lawsuit on behalf of a Republican activist, the lawyer was an attendee at the January 6th riot in D.C. This guy's name, uh, the attorney's name, is Paul Davis. He's from Frisco, Texas, and his client is Morgan McComb, who is well-known as a GOP activist up in North Texas. If you've run for office as a Republican in Tarrant or Dallas counties or probably uh, Collin and Denton counties, you've heard of Morgan McComb. She's, she's someone who shows up in these in these races. And all Leach had said, and here's the thing, uh, pretty, I'm pretty sure this is a frivolous lawsuit, but here, and I'm not an attorney, obviously, but he didn't actually say that the woman was a seditionist or that she was treasonous. This is the way that the uh, exchange went down. They were talking to each other on Twitter, and McComb asked Chairman Leach, quote, are you accusing me of treasonous sedition, close quote. His answer was, if you believe in Texas secession, then, quote, unequivocally, yes, close quote. So he didn't call her a seditionist. She called herself a seditionist and he just agreed with it, right? So I don't think that's going to go anywhere, but this tells you a lot. I mean, Jeff Leach, who was one of the more Freedom Caucus type guys when he was first elected, now these activists are considering him to be more of the establishment, right? Because he, because he's not for their sedition bill. Yeah. And look, it's fitting into like a showmanship you know, episode of the Texas take here, but like, you know, the fact that they, you know, they had to serve him there at the, uh, at the, you know, the committee hearing, come yeah. on, they didn't have to do that. They could right. have done that anywhere. They could have grabbed him in the lunchroom. <laughs> they could have, you know, gone to his, I don't know, his office. <laughs> mm-hmm. They could anywhere have else. gone to his home. They could have gone anywhere mm-hmm. to, you know, serve him. They decided that they wanted that show. And so, mm-hmm. you know, putting that show on, it's like, right. My goodness, it's like, you know, everybody's just playing for the camera. And at some point, don't we just have to talk about policies and just kind of hammer this stuff out? You're right. That kind of thing is not gonna, done in good faith. If you, if you have to go to where the person works, it's probably after, and you've seen this play out before with someone uh, trying to serve papers to somebody who's being sued. Uh, first, you would try something low key. It's only later that you show up in their driveway you know, uh, and and uh, to Chairman Leach's credit, he didn't put on his running shoes like Ken Paxton when he got you know <laughs> when he got served with a lawsuit and ran the other way. Um, the governor continues his voucher roadshow, and he's been all over the place. I, I can't even keep up. Where do you know where he was this week? I'm trying to remember. Uh, Fort Worth for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and I I'm not sure where. I think it was just Fort Worth. Yeah, maybe one other place. I mean, this is going to continue, I guess, at least until next week. I was told by a Republican source, and we'll see how this works out, that the governor's team is looking at continuing the roadshow for at least another week, and then after that, reassessing where they're at. And this this comment was made by a Republican source after the Texas House basically shut the door in Abbott's face about school vouchers, which we talked about on our last program. Well, he's sticking with the same message about woke agendas being taught in Texas public schools. So he's just uh, taking this in a completely different direction in my estimation, because it's such a broadside attack on independent school districts. Remember when this kind of started, Jeremy, you had the governor saying a version of how great Texas public schools are. And I'm talking a year ago 
when, when, when he was talking on the Chad Hasty show in Lubbock and some of the other places where he would talk about school choice, um, he would talk about public schools in Texas as being fine, but you do need to have this alternative. This is really ramping up the rhetoric, and it, it's not new in the last couple of months, but it's new since the last year or so is, is what I mean by that. Listen to him talking about the radical left taking over public schools, even here in the great state of Texas. The school curriculum is getting away from that reading, writing, math, and science, and teaching things like a woke leftist radical agenda that gets away from the fundamentals. Of course, he went on to say that schools are for education, not what, Jeremy? Indoctrination. <laughs> not <laughs> so many of these. Hey, let's, let's practice this. Schools are for education, not indoctrination. All right, you got it. We would have the, that whole crowd just roaring right now. Yes. Um, he, said, he said that many he's, times. He's made that punchline like, you know, he's sharpened it to a razor's edge. And now he, like, mm-hmm. he know, like he's getting the feedback he wants every time he says it. So right. kudos for him for, like in the early days when he was starting to, you know, for rolling that thing out, it, there'd be a, a smattering of applause because he wasn't emphasizing it right. Now he's got it. He's nailed it. <laughs> right. Here's where I think it's not working for him. Without evidence and without naming names of who he's talking about or what campus this may have happened at, um, the governor said that kids are being taught in public schools in Texas to hate the United States. A principal that I met at a private school who had been a public school teacher for years. She loved being a public school teacher except for one thing after another thing happened that caused her to leave being a public school teacher. But she said that the straw that broke the camel's back was when she saw a history teacher teaching children to disrespect the flag of the United States of America. Let me tell you something. We will not use your taxpayer dollars to teach our kids to hate the United States of America. You know what this sounds like, Jeremy? Where have I heard this before? Accusing people in a large institution of being anti American. Um, and Abbott's obviously not the only one to say this. This is the, the kind of language that's being used by Ron DeSantis in certain settings and other people who want to be president. But accusing people without evidence of being anti-American and putting it on them to prove that they're not anti-American, right? That, that they need to offer the evidence that they're not anti-American. Where, where have I heard it this It feels before? like somewhere in the history books, right? Let me let me go back in the history books here, back in the archive. You remember Senator Joseph McCarthy in the 1950s accusing the army of all institutions, that the, the U.S. Army was being infiltrated by communists. In early 1954, with his power at its peak, Senator McCarthy takes a gamble. Armed with the flimsiest of evidence, he takes on a respected institution, the U.S. Army. He claims it is infiltrated by communists and that senior officers are turning a blind eye. The explosive charges trigger public hearings in the Senate. Live TV coverage provides millions of Americans with their first sustained look at the crusading senator and his bare-knuckle methods. In this committee, activities may well determine this nation will live or die. I want to make it clear that the United States Army does not coddle communists. This committee knows that. The American people know that. I would say that people back then knew that the army was not full of communists, right? If there had ever been an example of it, it would have been 
you know, maybe one, one person who got caught being a communist in the army, but this was not some widespread thing by any stretch of the imagination, Jeremy. And I think that Texans know right now today that teachers in Texas public schools are not anti-American, right? And so here you have the governor saying something that is unprovable, right? There's a reason he's not naming names or saying exactly where this happened. He just says it happened somewhere in North Texas, somewhere in Dallas. Um, If there was ever an example of anti-American sentiment in Texas public school classrooms, I'm pretty sure that would be handled at the local level, lickety split, right? I don't know that that teacher would be in a job for very long. And I think that where the governor is getting out over his skis here is he's straying so far from a true narrative that the average person, even the average Republican primary voter is going to say, you know, I don't know that that can't be right. And let me give you an example. So you remember a few years ago, the governor was supporting some challengers to Texas House candidates, uh, Texas House incumbents. There were three of them. Uh, that he had a problem with. Uh, one was former uh, Representative Sarah Davis. Another one is former Representative Lyle Larson and former Representative um, Wayne Faircloth. One from Houston, San Antonio, and Galveston, respectively. And I attended some of those rallies, Jeremy, where, where the governor was in full attack mode against Sarah Davis, Lyle Larson, and Faircloth. And he said a lot of things that were probably closer to true than what I'm about to say. But one of the things that he said that was outrageous, and I think people who heard it, who probably people who wanted to believe him, the thing that he said was that Sarah Davis and Lyle Larson have every right to run for office, but they should do it as the liberal, the quote, liberal Democrats that they really are. And I think when people heard that, it was just going way too far, right? They might disagree on different policies. And, and honestly, the, the issue that had upset Abbott was that Davis, Larson, and Faircloth had all spoken about Abbott's consolidation of executive authority. They didn't like that he was doing so much by executive order, for example, and just circumventing the, the legislative process. His response was basically to do the then version of calling them woke liberals, which is what Trump would do all the time, right? Or DeSantis would do all the time to say that they were liberal Democrats. It, it sort of... Uh, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing, voters in those areas who love Abbott, right? In in those districts, Abbott did very well in his reelection efforts, but they didn't believe it. Two of the three were reelected, right? I think that when you go too far and you say these things that the average person just can't wrap their mind around, that it's just not believable, that this is how you start to really lose the argument. To, for, to me, it, this sounds really desperate, Jeremy. Well, and, and you know, as we were talking about, I'm starting to think about like the long term implications of this. Right. You know, wh- whether he's successful or not, you know, everything he's saying in these events uh, is providing, I think, you know, boy, I don't know if the Democrats listening to the show are taking some notes here. But uh, I think, you know, if you listen to these speeches, there's a lot of material in this to go to places that don't like vouchers, but are kind of Republican ish, you mm-hmm. know, that you might be able to make the case that, you know, on school vouchers, like some of the stuff he says, you know, is, you know, offensive to the schools and to mm-hmm. these teachers and, you know, to the people you know who are teachers. Like, hey, look, it turns out teachers are people who live in these communities and they're not anti-Americans, you know, right. it's like they're like, I look, I know a lot of teachers. I think we all do. Mm-hmm. It's like, and they're like, you know, to paint it with a broad stroke like that is just, 
I think all of that could be used by a Democrat down the road, mm -hmm. you know, when they're campaigning, not necessarily just against the governor, but in, yeah. in all those races too. Like if you don't change, you know, Greg Abbott's going to get who he wants in there to gut your school. I think he's providing yeah. a lot of material in these rallies for people to use. And I, like you always have that potential when you're putting any, you know, sort of muscle, political muscle mm -hmm. into an issue like sure. this. I get that. But I just wonder, like, like you said, it's like, does he go too far at some point where he's just giving so much material and made it so consistent and yet he still doesn't get this through? Right. It's like he could be in the worst of all worlds. Well, it didn't happen. And now he's loaded up people in Tarrant County with this idea that the Republicans are coming for your school. Yep. You know, it's just like that is like I, I would not want to be a part of that next election cycle if that's where we end up and you start seeing seats flip in the right. Texas House, you know, and places that shouldn't flip. So this could be an issue. It's an interesting point because I would say the teacher vote in Texas, unlike a lot of other states, the teacher vote in Texas is a swing vote. Yes. And this is to the consternation of a lot of Democratic consultants I talk to who say, you know, in other states, they can just kind of count on the teachers showing up and voting for them. But teachers in Texas vote for a lot of Republicans, right? I mean, teachers who live in rural Texas are not voting for Democrats. They're voting for Republicans, right? For the, for the, you know, for the vast majority of them. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's one of those groups of voters that you can lose through yeah. this kind of a message. And guess what? There are a lot of teachers and guess you can guess this too. They vote. This is a, this is a group that does not sit it out during elections, including those primary elections and those general elections every time. Yeah. And I know I've belabored this over the years here now, but like, you know, my Florida experience shows me when you get a close race, uh, like, you know, Florida races have been for most of the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, the issue that becomes so vital is education. It becomes mm -hmm. the issue. It is why Jeb Bush won his second run for governor. He lost the first one when he mm -hmm. ran the second time. This is the issue he drove home, just like George W. Bush did. Here in Texas, he drove right. that issue as mm -hmm. like, you know, and not just for vouchers. Look, they talked about vouchers, but they talked about education holistically mm -hmm. and won a lot of those independent type people you're talking about who you know, may not always be Democratic, you know, and they're 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 in play. And the Republicans at some points have figured out, you know, and again, in close environments that you need that. And remember, where was George W. Bush back then? He was running against Ann Richards. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, he needed to appeal to the middle. That's what Jeb Bush had. He was running in a state that had, you know, that had a Democratic governor and he had to flip that. And I right. think that's what we're going to end up with. Abbott, like as this state gets closer, uh, it's like you start having to kind of worry about, OK, how do you drive education as that issue? And it kind of gives, you know, not to, you know, play too much hindsight here on, on Beto O'Rourke's campaign, but boy, like. Greg Abbott started talking about vouchers in, in May of last year. Mm -hmm. This, I would have made the issue so heavy. <laughs> I yeah. would have, I, if I were running against uh, a governor at that point, I would have said he's coming from your schools everywhere I went right. and made it the focal point because that's where you get people who have kids in the school who are kind of Republican because everybody else is. Right. And, but they will listen to that. They go, oh, they're going to take money away from Odessa Permian. They're going to take away from Converse Judson. They're going to take when, when you hear it from your about your school, like your school could get you know hosed in this. It changes the debate. 
Right. And I think to the point of even turning off a lot of Republicans, I saw this uh, play out in Ohio uh, this week. It was just a, an, an incredible moment where uh, a state representative who is a Republican just lit up a guy who was there uh, testifying in favor of expansion of school vouchers in Ohio, uh, this guy from Americans for Prosperity, which, by the way, is also one of the groups that's here pushing for vouchers in Texas. This is a yeah. national thing, right? Um, you could tie it right back to what's going on here in Texas. This guy from AFP uh, had, on the one hand, criticized the Ohio legislature for having uh, you know, a budget that's too bloated with pork and too liberal and all of that. Uh, and this, uh, this Ohio uh, House representative, they were talking in their, their finance committee, uh, John Cross is this Republican's name. And listen to him just go to town on this lobbyist who's there pushing for vouchers. I am just completely uh, baffled that you would walk in here and have the guts to tell us that we have a mediocre budget, that you ask for school choice that's going to cost us billions of dollars, but then make a snarky comment that we're spending more money. Wouldn't we be better off taking some money in our budget to fix the schools and fix, because I, I tell you what, I really like my public schools. I really am proud that Carson and Connor, my son, goes to Kenton City School and gets an education from there, just like I did. So, Mr. Chairman, I think anyone's going to come testify before us. If you're going to walk up to the podium and make snarky comments and think we're doing a half-assed job, take your self out of this room and walk somewhere else because it ain't going to get you anywhere now we'll say that he has every right to be here to testify absolutely he yeah. does and i have a right to have this microphone on and tell him that what i think all right all right so so well, let's so, get to a question so the question is it, it's pretty it's it's pretty uh, ballsy of you to sit here and say that we're, that we're spending a lot of money but your your pro your pro-choice bill is going to cost us how much more in the state government? How many more billions of dollars is it going to cost us to make sure Carson can go to hard northern schools versus Kenton City schools? Okay, or are we going to fix things? So I'd like to know how your billion-dollar plan is going to fix bad schools versus taking Johnny out of the bad school and putting him in a better school and not fixing the bad school. Uh, Representative Cross then told the guy from Americans for Prosperity that he was that Cross was going to go take another meeting while he tried to answer that. It was he was not having it. He got up and left. Um, I think that if folks think it's a slam dunk with all Republicans to be pushing this stuff, they're way off. And something that he said in that also applies to Texas. And you brought this up before, Jeremy. The cost of the school voucher program. Look, we could potentially afford what's being talked about now in the Texas Senate and is now sitting in the uh, the House Education Committee, this $8,000 voucher, you know, might be able to afford that this year with a record budget surplus of 50, I'm going all the way up to, to like $51 billion if you count what's in the Economic Stabilization Fund. We have this um, historic surplus, really. I mean, the, the amount of money that Texas is just awash in right now, it's hard to get your mind around how much money there is. But two years from now, four years from now, six years from now, a decade from now, if you put a program like that in place, what will it mean in the lean times? Go back to 2011. That was one of the ugliest legislative sessions we have had in Texas. It was a budget cutting session. And the program that got the biggest whack was public education, right? And the, and the folks in the public education space will tell you that in a lot of ways, the things that were done years later in 2019, to put a big infusion of cash back into the system. And since then, to try to buy down property taxes locally and have the state 
pick up more of the cost of a public education uh, system in the state, uh, that those things have, that's a lot of progress since 2011, but they'll still say that in a lot of ways they're, you know, pretty far behind and the national numbers, you know, tell the story. I mean, we still lag a lot of the country in per student funding. And it, when you have a quarter trillion dollar budget, that is a full half of it, a f- that a full half of it is for public education. It tells you how much it costs to educate, what is it, 5.6 million kids in Texas public schools, dedicating money now for a program that we don't have any idea if it's going to even work. Uh, and it seems so unworkable what came out of the Senate, by the way, because there are all these different concessions that were made to try to you know, uh, deal with the fears that certain people had about certain things like what you talked about with the, it being a coupon for the wealthy who already have their kids in private schools. And the, you know, the Senate said, Oh, you know, we'll, we'll address that. Senator Brandon Creighton and Lieutenant Governor Patrick supported it to say that if they have their kids in a private school now, they can't get this $8,000 voucher. Well, that causes problems from other Republicans that will say, well, why can't the guy who's been sacrificing to send his kid to sacred heart or whatever, why can't he get it? Right. He's driving a 30 year old car, a beater. (laughs) Uh, And, and, you know, uh, you know, making all kinds of sacrifices to be able to send his kid, and you're going to say that he can't. And then you have very conservative Republicans like Briscoe Kane from Deer Park. He's not a liberal, is he? No. No, okay. <laughs> I, was trying to, I was trying to draw the laugh there. Um, he has said that the state might be looking at uh, something that doesn't really provide, quote unquote, school choice for all. And he's obviously talking about the Senate plan. So I think these two are going to continue to clash. Um, the Author of that bill to regulate books in school libraries, he made a lot of concessions to Democrats this week. You remember the story, Jeremy, yep. of the man from Frisco. Actually, he moved to Frisco to run for that seat. Jared Patterson, who represents part of Frisco in the Texas House, made a lot of concessions to Democrats after saying he wasn't going to do that. Now, this bill has been highly controversial. It's been talked about as a Fahrenheit 451 style ban on certain books. And Patterson says it is not that people have said it's about silencing minority voices. And he says, it's not about that either. He also said that the idea that his book might potentially ban some Texas classics like Lonesome Dove. He said that was a myth that's being spread around by the quote, liberal media. Now, who could he have meant? Now, he said all that on the Chad Hasty show after he had told Democrats on the Texas House Public Education Committee that he would be happy to work with them to change the language of the bill such that it would not potentially ban something like Lonesome Dove, which, of course, you remember he had not read. And then he spent, as a Texas state representative, he had never read Lonesome Dove and apparently had never heard anything about it. When he was asked about whether sex with a prostitute uh, being referenced in a book would result in the banning of that book from a library? He said yes. And the way that you know that he doesn't know anything about Lonesome Dove is it's a Western. Of course, there's a reference to sex with a prostitute in a Western. Again, it's basic stuff. Well, the first thing he did on the floor of the Texas House after saying that his bill did not need any work was he immediately changed it dramatically to tighten up the language such that classic titles like Lonesome Dove and others would not be banned under his legislation. And to his credit, he earned 95 votes. He got 10 Democrats to vote for it, right? And I think, I'm pretty sure he might've gotten a a couple of Democrats to vote for it without making that change, but he wouldn't have gotten 10. 
he wouldn't be at almost a supermajority in the House if he wasn't honoring what he said originally that the stated goal was, which is to just keep sexually explicit material away from children, right? I have not talked to any Democrat or Republican in the House or the Senate who disagrees with that stated goal. Uh, But this brings up a lot of bad memories for people, Jeremy, a lot of bad history. You know, we were talking about McCarthy before. Um, The idea that you would be banning certain books or censoring certain books is touchy for good reason. Right. John Rosenthal from Houston uh, is a Jewish member of the Texas House. And as the bill was debated, Rosenthal uh, reminded legislatures, uh, reminded uh, his colleagues about the world's history on this issue. And members, you have to know the guy named Rosenthal must point out 1930s Germany when Nazis burned books by the thousand written by Jews, communists, and others, including works by such controversial authors as Albert Einstein, Sigmund Freud, Ernest Hemingway, Helen Keller, and Jack London. Colleagues, many works that have been banned in the past are considered among the greatest classics we have for us today. Those who have sought to ban books in the past were short-sighted and always on the wrong side of history. Now, not all Democrats agreed with that. Representative Sean Theory, also a Democrat from Houston, uh, said that she would vote in favor of the bill because, as a mother, she's deeply concerned about the kind of material that might be made available to children in Texas public schools. Now, my big question for Representative Patterson was simply this. Will he honor the commitment that he has made to keep the bill in its current form all the way through the legislative process. Because remember, as it was introduced in the committee, there's a potential that it would catch a whole lot of books that he says might not be a problem. As this was debated on the House floor, Patterson was very almost eager and he was ecstatic to talk about a a book called Gender Queer, which he talks about all the time. And in fact, he spent part of his Tuesday, it was either Tuesday or Wednesday, he was uh, tweeting out images from Gender Queer which I think this is the first time, Jeremy, I'm not sure, the first time the term butt plug has appeared in the quorum report <laughs> because, because he was tweeting out images of sex toys uh, and saying that children shouldn't see things like this. Um, and again, I haven't talked to any serious legislator who would disagree with that goal. Uh, Karina Kling, she makes her second appearance here on this, this episode of the show. She, she talked to uh, Patterson uh, on her program, Capital Tonight. Uh, on Spectrum News, and she asked that question, are you going to keep this the way it is, or might you revert back to the language that was problematic before? And Patterson said he's going to keep it the way that the 95 of his colleagues voted in favor of it. He's going to keep it that way if it makes its way all the way to the governor's desk. Absolutely. You know, we put some tighter guardrails up just to make sure that the TEA and the book vendors clearly understood what we meant by sexually explicit. We do tie in the penal code definitions. We believe that we've got a very straightforward and narrow definition uh, to protect our kids. Patterson, who in my experience has rarely acted in good faith, we it needs to be watched. We'll see if he honors that commitment. I want to end, Jeremy, with um, a middle-of-the-night hearing in the Texas House, which was heartbreaking in every way. And it was filled with parents from Uvalde and others who want to see the Texas legislature do something about guns. And this is the way that I um, thought about this. And I wonder what you think. I think, um, you know, you can always have two things be true at once. Um, You can have more than that be true at once. 
in this case, the two things I think are important uh, or, or they're significant is this. Um, one is that that hearing is a farce. They are not going to pass those bills, right? I mean, and the fact that the, 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 the simple fact that the hearing was held halfway through April tells you that these bills aren't moving, right? This is too late in the legislative calendar for this to really be taken seriously. As I mentioned, I think we've got 39, 38 days left to go here uh, as we count down to the end of the legislative session. But the other thing that can be true is their voices matter and they should be heard at the Capitol. They should be heard by Democrats and Republicans of people who could actually do something about this. And I'll tell you this, when it comes to tax policy, for example, that tax deal we were talking about earlier, it's possible that they work that out right at the end of the legislative session. I've seen it happen many a time, and I've seen conservative commentators make this point, that when leadership wants to do something, it doesn't matter when it got brought up on the legislative calendar, they can get it done. If the governor wanted to call a special session about it, which was the rallying cry of a lot of these folks over the last year, it could have been done last year, right? If leadership wants it, it happens. And how many times have we seen in the Texas House and the Texas Senate, and more recently, it's happened more in the Senate, where the rules just don't matter at all. You know, the legislative rules, none of that matters when the, when the lieutenant governor wants to throw it out the window, like he did uh, on the ban of critical race theory in the last legislative session. He'll just throw the window, throw, he'll, he'll throw everything out the window and get it done, right? So it's not like they could, that they won't do anything. But I mention the calendar date because it tells me that this ain't going anywhere. And these folks had to stay at the Capitol all day to do this, right? I mean, they were there for some of them there for ten hours, right? Yeah, and that's what's so difficult about you know, like the, again, these are just regular people. You know, mm-hmm. these aren't lobbyists. These aren't people who have been in the process forever and are used to kind of the system. But these are just regular people who have jobs and families mm-hmm. back home who this last year have traveled this state trying to get just to be heard. You know, and it, and then to to see like them get here so early in the morning and then just kind of be kind of jerked around by the legislative process. It's just, it's just, you know, look, I've seen this happen on so many other bills too. It's like, it drives me crazy every time, but to these folks, it's like, you know, these are the parents of children who were killed. And like, and yeah. it just seems like we could have a hearing for them. Even if you don't agree with what they want to do, you could have a hearing, you know, early in the session. You know, and say, you know, look, you know, and, and look, cry with them because whether they're Republican or Democrat or whatever, like, you know, this is terrible. It's like, yeah. it's okay to hear their stories. That's all they have left. It's like, so when, 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 uh, uh, when Veronica Mato was speaking at this thing, it killed me, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and it, when, you know, she looked, you know, like it happened yesterday and she was talking yeah. about her daughter, Tess, who was 10 years old. And then she just asked the most simple question that I think we should all be asking, which is, will she die in vain or yeah. will her life be saved for save another child? Like maybe your child. Yeah. It's like, what an important thing for everybody to hear. It's like, why not have that early in the session at a good time? You know, make sure everybody could hear that message. And like, again, the answer can be so many different things. It doesn't have to be necessarily what they want, I guess, but right. you could at least hear them out. And it just, it just breaks my heart to think of what all those people have gone through that 
just this, this indignity of like, okay, we'll let you speak at 10 o'clock mm-hmm. at night on a random Tuesday night. I don't even remember what day was at this point, right. but it just, it was just in a terrible spot. It just, it just feels like we sh- we can do something better. And, no, we should do something better for these families. One of those uh, uh, parents uh, of the Uvalde um, victims, Brett Cross, uh, his son, Uzziah, was killed in the massacre. He says he's sick to death of the words, thoughts, and prayers. I'm so sick of hearing those three words from our elected officials. While your prayers may have comforted you, they did nothing to absolve our pain. While you may think about May 24th, we live it every single day. While you pray that your children grow up to be healthy and happy, contributing members of society, we pray that our children knew we were doing everything we could to get to them in that school to protect them. Your thoughts and prayers didn't stop an 18-year-old from purchasing two high-powered semi-automatic rifles and all of those rounds of ammunition. Your thoughts and prayers didn't stop us from having to bury our children and two teachers. Your thoughts and prayers do not help the children that survived that were injured. Your thoughts and prayers haven't done anything in the 329 days since Uzziah was shot through his stomach, exiting his spine. Your thoughts and prayers are useless unless you have thought and prayed for legislation that you can help enact that could change this. This is the father of Anne-Marie Garza, who was killed as well. What was she thinking? What did she do wrong? Just a few of the many questions that drive you insane in this horrible reality. Do you have any idea what it feels like trying to make sure my four-year-old son doesn't forget his older sister? How painful it is to think that one day he won't even remember her last his last moments with her. I think a lot about the reasons other than money why we would allow 18-year-old teenagers to purchase a weapon so powerful. Coming from a country where mental health seems to be such a major concern, what sense does it make to give a child access to that kind of firepower? Speaking to the issue of mental health, um, Representative Joe Moody, who you may remember was also on the investigative committee, uh, the special committee that the speaker established uh, last year to look into what had happened in Uvalde and then report back to the legislature. Uh, Moody shared something during this hearing. He's he's also on this special committee, and um, he shared something during the hearing that had never come out before, I, I don't think. He, he, he says uh, here, and you'll hear it, he, he says this is something that hasn't been made public uh, previously. And it speaks to the mental state of this young man who was gunning down these children and these teachers. And it speaks to what I've said over and over again, which is the more people actually know about this, the more they would want to really do something about it and not just give it lip service. And I do want to say all of that was hard enough to hear. If you have children, there are some people who uh, listen to the show in the car while they're driving. If you have children in the car, you might turn the show off now. It's that bad. I think only adults should probably hear this. And by the way, only adults can do something about it. Children can't. So if you're an adult, you should turn it up. If you're a kid, you should turn it off. All right? This is really rough. And this is probably, in my experience covering the legislature, Jeremy, this is probably the worst thing I've ever heard in a hearing. And that is a high bar. Um, Take a listen. I'm going to tell you something. It hasn't really been shared outside of those who investigated the shooting. In the classroom where the shooter tore those kids apart, 
is a whiteboard. On one side of that whiteboard was a banner that said Lovebirds. It had the names of some of these innocent kids who were dating. <laughs> it listed four puppy love couples. Three of those pairs included kids who were murdered in that classroom that very day. The other side of what that whiteboard had uh, was empty. However, the attacker scooped up the blood of his victims and smeared it into a disgusting message there. What he wrote in innocent blood right next to that lovebird's banner was the phrase L-O-L. It's a little hard to hear there, and you could hear people in the crowd uh, gasping and crying. He said that the shooter had scooped up blood from the victims and on the whiteboard he had written LOL. And you think about the details that we still don't know, right? Even after hearing that, there are other things that we still don't know about. Um, the, 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 you know, the condition of the classroom, the way that the bodies looked, what Matthew McConaughey was so upset about that we, we do know that one of the little girls was so, um, her body was so damaged by the firepower that they could only uh, identify her by the green converse that she would wear, that she drew the, uh, the red heart on the toe. I am of the mind, and not everybody agrees with me, and I get it. It's emotional. Some lawmakers who don't agree with me and people out there who listen to the show may not agree. Um, I'm of the mind that the more you know about this and the less it's whitewashed, then the more people would really cry out for something to be different. Right. Um, when somebody turns little kids into hamburger with a weapon, I don't. I don't know that people need to actually see those images, but we have to talk about it in a different way. It's like you said earlier, Jeremy, on on one of our shows last year. I think, you know, it is bad enough to have a school shooting, and then we talk about this in terms of it being that much worse of a school shooting. Right. These are little kids who have not done anything wrong in their life. They haven't had a chance yet to do anything wrong. Right. We're talking about elementary school kids. And knowing what I know about this, if I start to think about it at night, I can't sleep. Right. And and I don't know how much the average person in the general public has paid attention to it. I'm only paying attention to this because it's my job to pay attention to these things. Um, I know people have heard the speeches and they've heard from these parents. You know, you attended that rally at the Capitol, um, with, with, with a lot of these, uh, uh, folks, a lot of the same folks who were at that hearing. And I think you compared it to the grieving families after nine 11, it was that bad, right? That, that you have these people who just didn't do anything wrong. They are massacred. And what really happens as a response is almost nothing, almost nothing. You know, the, the rhetoric from politicians is we need to have less doors on the school. Ted Cruz comes and says, hey, we need to have more security guards. I think that people talk about it as if it's either or, that we have to address mental health and evil people, or we have to address guns. And the truth is we could do both, right? You could do both. You could do both things. But it seems like because of the divisions that we have, that that's just not possible with the politics of the day. Well, And there's other states where they've been able to do both, you know, like 
you know, I'm not talking liberal havens. I'm talking like places like Florida, a Republican state with a Republican mm-hmm. governor was able to get some restrictions on 18 year olds getting these types of weapons. It's, it's okay. And, and I, and again, I, I, I know I, I already said this in a way, but like, these aren't lobbyists. You know, these, these are just moms and dads and sisters and brothers like who are like, who are about to have the worst month yet. You know, as they get to the one year anniversary of all this happening next week or next month, it's like it, it's like it, it they just deserve better in how we're mm-hmm. treating them and mm-hmm. listening to their voices. Again, you yeah. don't have to agree to do everything. I get it. That's not going to happen. But let's just hear them out. Let's let's let's, let's we put it all together and like like and try to understand like how devastating it would be mm-hmm. to have lost your child at 10. Like think of all the time, like my, my kids are older and think about all the time that I have had since they were 10 and it being gone. Mm-hmm. And they, and that will put you in the place of understanding what it's like to see your 10 year old never come home from school that day. Mm-hmm. And that is impossible to understand and feel until you've looked in the eyes of people like Tess Mata's mom, like Maite, who you were talking about with the green mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. tennis shoes, looking yeah. at their faces that I regularly post on Twitter mm-hmm. and, and, and where I can. It's just like, let's not forget these were just kids. This isn't, this is just not okay. Yeah. By the way, uh, my thanks to uh, Natalie Haddad at KVU Television and uh, Monica Madden at KXA, and they were tweeting out the video of uh, some of the comments you heard there from that hearing. They were staying there all night listening to those folks. Um, that's it. I can't. I can't do any more show. I, and I think it's appropriate to end right there. Uh, I do want to say a big heartfelt thanks uh, to everyone who's been giving um, what they can uh, to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society as we continue uh, on that campaign. The news I have is that we are now over halfway uh, to our goal of 25,000 raised. So you can help at scottbraddock.com. Scottbraddock.com is where I've got the link right at the top. And some people have been giving five bucks, 10 bucks. Some are giving more like a hundred, 500, a thousand. Uh, and we're doing this in memory of the late wife of my publisher, Harvey Kronberg, um, Michelle Kronberg. We lost her uh, after she was uh, diagnosed with leukemia. So when I was asked to do this, my answer was, I have to, right? I'm on top of it. So you can donate there, scottbraddock.com. We hope that you'll be a subscriber at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next time.